Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hi, and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Laurie Punch, and I'm an Associate Professor of Surgery at Washington University. I'm an acute care surgeon, and I trained in Baltimore, now practicing in St. Louis. Violence touches the lives of people and communities in so many ways, creating a public health issue and really a disease process which spans a wide expanse of human experience, from cellular responses to stress to the words of the U.S. Constitution. Approaching such a complex disease process can seem daunting and untouchable. But my hope is to support students, residents, faculty, and the community to have a framework of understanding what bullets do, how we can heal, and what might be done to stop the impact of violence in our lives. I call this approach the anatomy of gun violence. This concept breaks gun violence into different pieces that are more approachable, such as firearms, bullets, patients, professionals, and policy. To explore this concept, I'm going to walk through 10 questions which move through the anatomy of gun violence. My hope is by listening to this podcast, three things will happen. One, you will be aware, but not paralyzed, by the reality of gun violence. You will have one thing which you will be able to do to help reduce the impact of gun violence. And you will understand the ways in which advocacy beyond the operating room is necessary for ongoing healing and prevention of gun violence. Okay, question one. What is the number one priority for assessing a patient who presents after being shot? Well, just like any trauma, taking an ATLS approach is important. A stands for airway and always will. However, A gunshot wound represents penetrating trauma, and rapidly assessing the patient for bleeding is essential. Once airway and breathing are assessed, this is a head-to-toe exam looking for where the wounds are. Obviously, if the wounds involve the head, face, or airway, there's going to be a much higher level of concern and the need to act because both bleeding and airway disruption might be happening at the same time. Let's start with the brain. We unfortunately know that a transcranial trajectory of a gunshot wound is associated with a 90% mortality. With patients with gunshot wound to the head, they also might experience a rapid coagulopathy due to the consumption of clotting factors by the exposed tissue factor. In these patients, I find that external bleeding from the scalp can be profound and needs to be dealt with while you're rapidly stabilizing the airway and getting the patient hopefully to the point where you can scan them and assess whether or not that transcranial trajectory is in place. This is going to make a big difference in the prognosis for the patient and is an important set of information to get to the neurosurgeons who will be helping to support the patient. What about the neck? Again, you have major capacity for vascular or airway injury. If the patient has an expanding hematoma, voice changes, bubbles, Uh, air emanating from the wound, those are hard signs that the airway or the vasculature has been significantly compromised. 
In those scenarios, protecting the airway in a controlled setting, but rapidly doing so and getting the patient to the operating room for a neck expiration can be essential. This can be particularly challenging when someone has an airway that can't be approached through endotracheal intubation and requires immediate cricothyroidotomy when they also have substantial vascular injury. In this scenario, it's going to be important to still work with your colleagues to have a coordinated ABC approach to not get confused or distracted and to stay focused on both hemorrhage control and airway control. Now, not all patients will have those hard signs, but they can still have penetrating trauma to the neck from a gunshot wound. Anteriorly, posteriorly, across the entire neck, it can be difficult to know whether the aerodigestive tract, the vasculature, or the spine have been infected. A CTA can be done to evaluate all of these things. And in fact, some recent studies have shown that a lack of air in the deep fascial planes can be relatively a uh, reliable way of ruling out aerodigestive injury. In either case, these injuries need to be assessed rapidly and need to be taken seriously. What about the chest? Well, gunshot wound to the chest is associated with the 35% hemothorax or pneumothorax. A chest x-ray is one of the best ways to evaluate this as auscultating breath sounds during a busy trauma assessment can leave you with inadequate information, sometimes honestly being about as good as flipping a coin. Deep penetration of the chest, 15% of the time is associated with cardiac injury that can be evaluated with the FAST. Now, where you put the FAST ultrasound examination in the evaluation of a penetrating trauma patient maybe is up for some debate, but I'm going to tell you, I put it high on my list when I have someone who has penetration of the chest because recognizing tamponade early in the resuscitation of the patient is a Central. Remember, in penetrating trauma, trauma related to a gunshot wound, getting to the operating room, opening the right cavity, and having a framework for what your game plan is going to be is essential, and you don't have but a few minutes to make these decisions. A fast is a fast because it's fast and can give you an enormous amount of information quickly on where a patient might need intervention. In fact, a fast that shows you positive hemoperitoneum might also be something that gets you toward an operation in the abdomen. I really think for a gunshot wound in the abdomen, the question is, has the peritoneum been violated? If it has, I'm going to have a very hard time not taking that patient to the operating room. I think there is a role for CT imaging in a patient who has a right flank injury because isolated solid organ injury to the kidney or liver can be managed non-operatively. A study from Miami looking at 309 patients with gunshot wound to the torso showed that there is a golden 10 minutes after which the patient presents in which getting someone to the operating room in the setting of major vascular injury of the torso is associated with a 20% mortality and that extending that time from 11 to 20 minutes dramatically increases that mortality, doubling it up to 45%. When someone is bleeding, time is life. Penetrating trajectories within the abdomen and torso uh, are different, right? This is not blunt trauma, and I so often see people making the mistake to not explore a penetrating trajectory. The rule of leaving a non-expanding hematoma that can be found, for instance, on expiration for a blunt trauma does not apply in penetrating trauma. Missed injuries, sources of ongoing bleeding, are abound when penetrating trajectories are not explored. You need to follow the path and have an explanation for the holes and the bullets and the pathway you find. 
I have seen way too many times where this rule is not followed only to be found uh, later causing significant morbidity and mortality even for the patient. So when it comes to a gunshot wound, explore it. What about injuries to the extremities? Well, this is where immediate hemorrhage control with a tourniquet can truly be life-saving. A recent study looking at military deaths from 2000 to 2015 found a 44% decrease in deaths related to appropriate triage, the availability of blood, and yep, you guessed it, tourniquets. Getting a tourniquet on is life-saving maneuver that can be applied in the pre-hospital setting. Now, it can be a little tricky when the patient presents with a tourniquet already on, deciding how you will assess that arm or leg. Should you let the tourniquet down? If you have a report of significant bleeding, I think you need to wait until you're ready to resuscitate the patient before you let that tourniquet down. You can do it in a controlled setting, ready to immediately reestablish that tension if the patient starts bleeding again. If the bleeding wasn't so bad or there's not necessarily any evidence of external bleeding, there's a couple things you've got to do. You have to check the pulse and you have to check the index of flow to make sure it's comparable to the contralateral side. And one of the big things is to make sure there's not an associated fracture. These patients need x-rays. Now, if someone has multiple gunshot wounds and you're assessing them for torso injury, I do not necessarily think you're going to necess- spend a huge amount of time getting plain films of their arms or legs. I'm sorry, orthopedic surgery colleagues. We love you, but we can't do it when someone's bleeding internally. But certainly that's very important. We would not want to ask someone to fix a, a, a blood vessel with an extremity that's not at length. It's very important to assess for fractures before approaching vascular control. There can always be either temporary shunting done until that complete workup can be done. One thing about the axial spine, you'll see anybody who has penetrating trauma along the neck or torso is at risk for a spine fracture. I have seen, you know, throughout the literature, this has been pretty much clarified that these penetrating traumas are not associated overwhelmingly with spine instability. So while maintaining C-spine precautions and immobilizing the spine is imperative in blunt trauma as you're working a patient up, you certainly, for instance, wouldn't want to leave a C-collar in place for someone with a gunshot wound to the neck and miss a expanding hematoma or a hard sign of a vascular injury uh, because you're worried that the spine is unstable. And generally, it's very hard for a penetrating trauma to render a, the actual skeleton unstable. It does not have to be treated as such. So again, the priorities in assessing a patient who comes in with a gunshot wound, ABC is still ABC, but rapidly moving toward uh, hemorrhage control is important. That includes establishing large bore access and moving rapidly to transfusion. Now, currently, a liter of saline is, I would say, the maximum amount of fluid resuscitation you should give to someone who has uh, penetrating trauma and has signs of shock and ongoing blood loss. There are some who would argue that zero crystalloid is appropriate because it literally perpetuates a lot of the negative physiology that's associated with hemorrhage. Moving quickly to balanced uh, transfusion or even whole blood transfusion in the patient who's hypotensive with signs of shock or ongoing bleeding is essential in the penetrating trauma gunshot wound victim. I'll say it one more time. When someone comes in shot, you got to boogie. You got to move fast because every minute counts. And having a solid approach to the patient and working closely with the colleagues who are uh, helping you take care of the patient is essential to provide a great outcome. Question two, how many people are impacted by bullets every day, every year? Every day, over 100 people 
lose their lives to a bullet. Last year, there were nearly 40,000 people who lost their lives to bullets. We know that adults are more likely to die from a bullet that they put in their own body as suicide counts for around two-thirds of these deaths compared to homicide. That's not too true in children. The ratio is sort of opposite that. But bullets are the number two cause of death in children. The University of Pennsylvania did a study looking at deaths from 1999 to 2013 from bullets, almost a half a million lives. 462,000 people, 59% dying by suicide and 38 by homicide, with 2% unintentional deaths increasing over that time period. The CDC predicts that in 2021, gun violence will surpass motor vehicle collisions as the number one cause of death in people age 15 to 24. We know that having a gun in the home increases the chance of a domestic violence related mortality by 500% with a woman being shot by her partner every 16 hours in the United States. Mass shootings frequently grab the attention of the public through the media and are horrible gripping events, but they represent less than 2% of all firearm related injuries. When we think about who is involved in mass shootings, we need to remember that the core issue in a majority of these events is domestic violence, with women and children representing 40 and 40% 40 of all deaths, and adult men representing 20% of those who are impacted by mass shootings. Alright, question three. How do you decide to operate on a patient who comes to the ER after a gunshot wound? What do you do if they have already become pulseless? So gunshot wounds, uh, again, can be associated with rapid, massive blood loss. But it's not just how much the patient has been bleeding, but where that bleeding is coming from. Because, for instance, bleeding into the pericardium can be associated with uh, rapid progression to death, even with a small blood volume. Indications for a resuscitatory state of uh, thoracotomy versus Reboa is adds another level of complexity when you're thinking about the patient with penetrating trauma of the torso. So the resuscitative left anterolateral thoracotomy or ED thoracotomy is a procedure that can be done in the setting of penetrating trauma to the torso, gunshot wound, with loss of vitals within, let's say, 15 minutes of presentation to the emergency room. This one of some debate because unfortunately the truth is outcomes are generally made worse by performing CPR in a patient. And so if that patient is coming with CPR in progress without return of uh, circulation because they've lost so much blood, that's a tough one. But this is a scenario in which, once again, you have to decide with your team and your pre-hospital providers what the scenario is and whether or not performing a resuscitative thoracotomy is the right thing to do. The procedure requires a knife, a rib spreader, medicine bomb scissors, some kind of pickup, and ideally, packing material and suction. The biggest thing you'll need that might be specialized is also an aortic cross clamp. Certainly, these procedures indicated for a witness arrest within the emergency room if somebody comes in with penetrating trauma and then becomes pulseless. Now, the endpoints for resuscitative thoracotomy compared to the Reboa, right, the, are, are completely different. A a resuscitative thoracotomy is going to be able to do a number of things, including release of pericardial tamponade, allow for open cardiac massage, 
release of tension hemothorax, lung twist, in addition to intracardiac administration of drugs, and finally, aortic cross-clamping, whereas the Reboa catheter is only associated with aortic occlusion, although the difference is access for this aortic occlusion is through the femoral artery and can be approached via cut-down or percutaneous seven-front sheath, and the access for the procedures that can be done through resuscitative thoracotomy is obviously an enormous and sometimes very morbid incision. So how do you make the difference? How do you tell the difference? When should you aim for endovascular occlusion and when should you open the chest? Well, as my good friend from the Air Force, Dr. Jerry Fortuna, likes to say, if you need to get in the chest, get in the chest. If someone has tamponade, if someone has evidence of massive hemothorax, if somebody has evidence of intrathoracic pathology that needs to be dealt with within the chest, there is no replacement for the resuscitative thoracotomy. You've got to get in the chest. Where the question is, is for the patient with visceral intra-abdominal non-compressible hemorrhage that can be treated with aortic occlusion, in that patient, I certainly have thought about in my practice moving to the endovascular aortic occlusion rather than the open control. And that is because getting in the chest, getting an effective aortic cross clamp properly placed, and then dealing with the morbidity of the open chest wound is substantial. So how do you do the procedure? Well, you're going to start, again, usually I use a 10 blade. And the biggest mistake I see my residents doing when they perform this procedure is to not make that incision high enough. I tell them, aim to cut the bottom of the areola. That will get you to about the fifth intercostal space, which is where you want to be. Once you come significantly below that, you run a risk of literally coming across the xiphoid as you're trying to open the chest. Once you've decided where you're going to cut, you're going to take that knife and push as hard as you can using the rib itself underneath to guide your knife because as you come from the edge of the sternum underneath the areola, we're going to then turn up toward the axilla and follow the curve of the rib. Then if one cut doesn't do it, hopefully you'll get it on your second cut to the where you can identify the anterior surface of the rib. Then you can use your finger to bluntly dissect an opening along the superior edge of the costal margin or scissors to take down the intercostal bundle, aiming for the top of the rib, not for the bottom, so you avoid the intercostal artery. Then if you are able to, you can place a rib spreader and spread the ribs uh, quickly. Sometimes, however, it is necessary to come across the sternum with a Lebschke knife. This is frequently my practice because I think the access and exposure is so much better. However, doing that sternal division definitely increases the morbidity and incision. After you spread, the first thing that you're going to do is sweep the left lower lobe anteriorly and identify the pericardium. You need to open the pericardium quickly. This is actually the step that you make before you cross clamp the aorta, especially if you're dealing with chest trauma itself, because releasing tamponade is uh, one of the most fixable reversible causes of shock in the chest uh, that you can perform. And so the thing is, grabbing the pericardium is really tough, especially if it's full of blood. Sometimes I will actually take the knife itself and make a nick very carefully in the pericardium and then use the Metzenbaum scissors and pick up, extend the pericardotomy uh, using a caudal cephalide track for that cut and not a medial lateral so that I avoid the phrenic. 
Then, uh, once it's ruled out that there is or is not blood within the pericardium, I'm going to move toward aortic cross clamping, provided there's no evidence of great vessel injury within the chest itself, because the aortic cross clamp is going to go below the takeoff of the great vessels. Uh, this is tough to do, and the way I do it is I identify the bony spine uh, with my thumb of my left hand and then identify, if I can, the esophagus, which maybe has even got a nasogastric tube in it by this time. It's a reasonable request to ask who's ever up at the airway to pass down a tube. It helps you feel the esophagus and differentiate a very flat, hypotensive aorta, and a young person can feel a lot like an esophagus. And so uh, once you use uh, those borders, you're going to literally uh, bluntly dissect around the aorta and make a passageway through to the other side of the mediastinum for that aortic cross clamp, which you will then advance and clamp. It's super important whether you're including the aorta endovascularly or open to mark the time. I know that can be different, to, difficult to do in the midst of the chaos, but it helps everyone understand the overall course for the patient. Now, hopefully during this time, the patient's getting resuscitation. I think one of the biggest things that I see missed is that team members are focusing on getting the chest open and not necessarily focused on getting access for the patient because blood resuscitation is important. But once that pericardium is opened, you can directly administer epinephrine into the ventricle being careful to be able to get access to the uh, intracardiac space directly while the chest is open. Uh, let's say you don't have access yet. Working on that, you can inject epinephrine directly into the heart, same dose as a code drug. You just need a needle that you can actually access the ventricle with. And then uh, the other thing that's possible when the chest is open is open cardiac massage. A lot of times as you're resuscitating the patient, they will devolve into atrial ventricular fibrillation, and you can also do open cardiac defibrillation with paddles. The key here is that usually at this point, patients are acidotic and may need some cardiac support as you're getting them filled back up again with blood resuscitation. I have had many patients respond to open cardiac massage, although in general, if you still look at it overall, Resuscitated thoracotomy, all comers is associated with about a 7% success rate. So the procedure needs to thought been thought about very carefully. Uh, again, Roboa can be uh, utilized, and I think the indications, the outcome, and the mechanism for using this technology is still being described. But in a patient in whom you can get femoral artery access, who is hypotensive and has evidence especially of penetrating trauma to the pelvis, might be benefit from this procedure because it gets rid of the morbidity of the chest incision. Either way, time is life, and moving quickly toward control is essential. Question four, what are risk factors for gun violence? The risk factors for gun violence are associated with the environment and the identity of uh, the person. I've already alluded to many of the kinds of things that put people at risk for experiencing firearm injury as a cause of death. That includes being a child, uh, being a woman, uh, but also uh, being a person of color, color and specifically black men. Uh, one of the things that we don't think about is the way in which mental illness is not a risk factor for the perpetuation of gun violence, but rather a risk factor for the experience of it, recognizing that people who have mental health uh, disease are much more likely to, to be killed by a bullet than to kill someone else. That is reflected in the numbers of suicide. 
those who are at risk for suicide uh, include a wide range of people and should really be brought to the attention that even on this podcast that physicians have a substantial higher risk of suicide when you compare that to the general public. It is something that we don't talk about enough and really something that is near and dear to my heart, having lost a number of colleagues over the years to this disease process. So understanding that risk factors are uh, also not just within someone's identity, but associated to the risks of the environment around them is super important. If you look at the patterns that put people at risk for gun violence, having a gun in the home, having a gun that's in the home, loaded and not locked and being in an environment in which there is a high tendency or propensity for violence related crime. All of these uh, put people at risk for gun violence. Question number five, is suicide really gun violence? I think when we consider gun violence, sometimes as surgeons and physicians and health professionals, we can feel that it's out of our lane to talk about the way that bullets get into people's bodies, which is through a gun which is fired. I understand the angst around that. And I also understand the people who have taken a very, very strong stance and saying, no, this is our lane. But I want to say this one thing. I know for sure that I've never seen the gun that fired the bullet that went inside one of my patients, but I have seen the pathway of destruction and death that those bullets takes and whether or not that bullet got there because someone put it in that person's body or they put it in there themselves intentionally or unintentionally, I need to understand what that bullet does and the risk factors my patient has for those bullet injuries so that I can treat and prevent it in the future. Not including suicide with the homicide numbers, I think falsely decreases the impact of bullets in the health of in the health of our patients and our communities. So I think it's actually really, really important when we think about what bullet injuries are, that we include them in the numbers. The decision to think about gun violence in the larger uh, political environment in which it occurs is one that every physician has to make. But I would encourage people that no matter what, you don't turn your eyes away from what's happening in the lives of people. Gun violence is the number two cause of death in children and takes the lives of adults, even physicians, at alarmingly high rates. I think we need to understand the disease as a whole so that we can think about how to treat and prevent it. Question six. How many guns are there in the United States? There are over 393 million firearms in the United States, and that makes it out to be about 120 guns for every 100 people in this country. There are more bullets made every year than there are people in the U.S. The right to interact with and have firearms is complicated with rules and regulations that are as deep as our U.S. Constitution itself but also regulations that might differ from state, municipality, and local government uh, very, very much depending on where you are. Interacting with this, the issue of, of guns in our lives and, and bullets and how they, I have, as I've already shown you, deeply impact our health and, and, and wellness can be really, really challenging. I think that heterogeneity, I think that 
that uh, variance of opinion and really, really variance of experience can make you feel as a health professional that you cannot have safe and productive conversations with your patients. I really think that that's just not true because I know it's possible to approach patients with respect regardless of where you both might sit on any particular issue, agreeing on this one thing, which is wanting to make the best plans and choices to keep people in their homes and in their communities as safe as possible. Question seven, what research has been done to understand this issue? Research in understanding the impact of bullets and firearms in lives has been limited greatly since the Dickey Amendment of 1996, which made it such that the CDC could not fund research, which was in any way construed as to impact or infect gun control. That means there are a lot of really basic public health framework of questions around firearms and bullets, which are not answered. I have shared some of the risk factors as we understand them. I've shared some of the impact as we understand it medically, but there is much greater body of research that needs to be understood so that we can fully describe the impact of guns and fire and bullets in our lives and be able to treat and prevent their sequelae. So, what are we going to do about that? What's happening around that? Well, there are a lot of groups around the country that have taken this into their own hands. I think most notably the Affirm group, uh, a group of physicians uh, with the leadership of Dr. Megan Rainey, who are self-funding research in this area and funding researchers around the country to take a deep look into the risk factors and proven solutions in preventing and treating gun violence. There are other groups, for instance, the group at Hopkins uh, doing tremendous work there with Dr. Webster, uh, new uh, state-based and collaborative processes, for instance, in New Jersey. There's the group at UC Davis. Uh, and then there are professional committees uh, and professional organizations, such as the American College of Surgeons and EAST and the AAST and the Society of Black Academic Surgeons and many others who are working together to come up with consensus-based, responsible, responsive uh, work and ideas, principles and policy to try to reduce the impact of gun violence in the lives of people. Question number eight, bullets. Do I have to take them out of my patients? I think the question of whether or not you have to take a bullet out is actually one of those really, really great questions that is not studied well and could be studied much better if we had proper funding to look at this kind of a question. I know that there is definitely a popular opinion that taking a bullet out is essential, certainly uh, made uh, well known through many movies where, you know, the moment comes where someone is shot and the only thing that the, has to happen is that, that bullet has to come out and make the little clink in the metal plan. And once it comes out, everything is fine. I think sometimes physicians can be dismissive of the way in which the public espouses those kinds of ideas, thinking there is no medical reason for that. But, you know, art imitates life and people have a sense that if a bullet is out, 
they're safer. And I, I really think that matters. In fact, there's been a couple of studies looking at the impact of retained bullets on depressive symptoms, most notably coming from Dr. Randy Smith, again, out of Penn, in which people who had retained bullets definitely had higher rates of depressive symptoms. There really probably, I think, needs to do be some serious work done on this in terms of the patient's perception, because certainly people who have to carry around a piece of metal that was meant for their harm and even death have a psychological burden that those who haven't experienced that might have a hard time imagining. So definitely think an area of tremendous insight uh, that needs to be looked at further through research. I will tell you in my practice, if there's any way I can take a bullet out, without causing someone undue exposure to risk surgically, I try to do it. Question nine, how do bullets impact people and how do bullets impact communities? When someone is shot, whether they live or die, recognizing that overall there are nationwide two to three non-lethal firearm injuries for every lethal firearm injuries, those ratios may be approaching a 10 to 1 ratio in uh, cities such as St. Louis, where there are far more non-lethal firearm injuries and people being shot multiple times every day. Uh, how does that reality impact the lives of people in a home, in a family, in a school, and in a larger community, and even the, the country? You know, just because somebody did not feel the sting of a bullet, I know for sure they still felt the impact. That's because uh, a moment as transformative as having someone try to take another's life or having someone take their own is going to have a ripple effect in a community and in a home, which is profound. And I think one of the reasons why that ripple effect is so powerful is that it's so sudden. Bullets are permanent. You, there is no rewind. There is no do-over. They translate a transient moment of disrespect, of despair, of fear, into a permanent reality that cannot be erased. There are studies that show even when uh, officer and law enforcement related firearm death occurs, entire communities experience higher rates of high blood pressure. We know that uh, while firearm related deaths associated with law enforcement are very low, last year perhaps representing around 1,500 incidents, the same amount of firearm injuries and deaths that were associated rather with home invasions that those events deeply impact the consciousness of the local community, certainly living in St. Louis and having seen what Michael Brown's death did to this community and what Michael Brown's death represented to a lot of people is super impactful. While a bullet is small, sometimes only measuring a half inch, they travel fast and they are unforgiving. When one person feels a bullet, uh, there are hundreds more who are affected. And finally, last question, number 10. How can we prevent gun violence? There are a number of ways in which the impact of bullets can be reduced. The recovery of bullet injury can be enhanced and firearm injuries themselves can be prevented. One of the things that I 
spend a lot of energy on is stop the bleed because I believe that is a model of harm reduction when it comes to firearm related injuries, similar to the model that we see in using Narcan for opiate overdoses. Uh, once a bullet has entered a body, bleeding is going to be the most preventable cause of death in that person. And so teaching the public how to stop the bleed can be transformative, especially in communities experiencing high rates of violence and firearm related death. Another part that can be done to reduce the impact once the events has already occurred is hospital-based violence intervention programs. We know one of the main risk factors for being shot, which I didn't say before, but I want to emphasize now, is having been shot. Hospital-based violence intervention programs take and create a wraparound set of services for patients who have experienced violence in which the larger social context that created the risk factors for violence can then be addressed in their lives be it uh, financial, legal, educational, financial, uh, interpersonal, and by s surrounding that person with those supports and doing it longitudinally for six months or 12 months, we can reduce and the impact of that event and help people have true healing, which then puts them at lower risk for not just uh, the experience of gun violence, but the perpetration of gun violence. Within the home and within uh, environments in which children are at risk for unintentional injuries, the be smart approach to talking to patients and uh, families about safe storage in the home. We know that we can end family fire by making sure that firearms are stored locked and unloaded with ammunition locked also and in a separate space so that children are less likely to encounter firearms that are loaded and unintentionally hurt themselves. There we have a unique statistic in Missouri as, uh, as uh, we share with a number of other states in which we have a number of people who have been, died after being shot by toddlers. And then finally, uh, when it comes to uh, two major areas of violent, of firearm related injury, which include suicide and uh, interpersonal violence. I think uh, there are uh, three big programs I want to talk about. One is Cure Violence. This is a program that was initiated through the work of an infectious disease doctor who recognized that violence spread like an infectious disease and could be prevented by interrupting the cycle of transmission by empowering, teaching, educating, and equipping local community members who could then identify ways to de-escalate and, and uh, alter the trajectory of violence within communities. CALM or counseling on access to lethal means is a mechanism of interacting with people just in time uh, who are presenting with suicidality uh, to make sure that they do not have access to lethal means, whatever it might be, and that perhaps firearms could be kept by a friend. Uh, this is a program even uh, being supported through fire uh, gun, gun stores and uh, firing ranges. The um, work to also um, disrupt, I think, moments of uh, domestic violence uh, is really held within uh, states uh, and local municipalities, both uh, in a creating a, a law and also enforcing it uh, that allows for um, 
uh, women to be, and, and really anybody to be protected from uh, partners in which domestic violence is a concern. And for uh, those who have been, uh, you know, officially and properly identified to be perpetrators of domestic violence, that they not have the same access to uh, firearms that the general public has. Again, recognizing the unique risk that a home has or that a relationship has to domestic violence when a firearm is uh, available. Until next time, dominate the day.